Well, as we end this series, I end with this question. Is your life a tragedy or a comedy? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> Some of you are like, definitely tragedy. Well, hang on. Here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if life is all laughter from start to finish, nor am I asking if life is all suffering from start to finish. But if you remember in high school, reading all the Shakespearean plays and what have you, they had comedies and tragedies. Dante, the famous poet, put it like this. A tragedy is a story that begins in joy but ends in pain. A comedy is a story that begins in pain but ends in joy. Or the way I like to think about it, a frowning face or a smiley face. A tragedy is like the shape of a frown. It may have highs in it, but it ends on a low. On the other hand, a comedy is like the drawing of a smiling face. It may have really low lows, but it actually ends on a high. And so the difference is not how much pain or how, la how much laughter you have in your life. The difference is the shape of your life, where your story is headed and how it ends. And in that sense, the book of Esther in the Old Testament is what we might call a comedy. We've journeyed over the last few months in this story, learning about this young Jewish woman named Esther who was chosen to be queen by King Xerxes, who ruled and reigned over the ancient Persian Empire. But no sooner does she arrive in the palace that she hears from her older cousin Mordecai, who raised her, about a horrible plot. We learned that a man named Haman, one of the chief commanders in the empire, the, the prime minister, if you will, hated the Jewish people, absolutely hated the Jewish people, and obtained government permission to annihilate and kill all the Jews in the empire. And once he obtained that that permission, he cast lots, he rolled the dice to, to pick a day, and they had 11 months until their doom was sealed. But it was in the midst of this tragedy that this woman, Esther, rises up. And along the way, we've seen Esther and her cousin Mordecai, though they started out as passive and perhaps even compromised and assimilated into the broader Persian culture, We've watched them come out of the shadows as they've chosen to identify with the people of God. And as a result, Esther, in the middle of the story, she intervenes. She confronts the king and she exposes the plot of Haman and his wicked plan to kill the Jews. And as a result of her doing that, Haman was destroyed and the king passed a new law that would secure the freedom of her people. And here as we come to the end of the story, we are told that the Jewish people were able to defend themselves against their oppressors. And the story ends with their freedom celebrated. In that sense, Esther's a comedy. And so I ask the question again as we reflect on this, is our life, is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? We have to say that without Jesus Christ, 
Life is a tragedy. In the truest sense of that word, it doesn't matter how well it goes, how much money you make, how great your family is, how, what kind of status you have in life, it ends in the grave, and because of the problem of sin, eternal separation from God. Doesn't matter how good it is or how high it goes, it ends with death without Christ. It's a tragedy. But with Christ, it's a comedy because it ends with victory. And the great highlight at the end of this chapter is a huge party and a celebration and a holiday that the people never stop remembering what brought about their deliverance and neither should we if our faith is in Jesus Christ. Here's why I say that. One of the reasons I get discouraged One of the reasons I would guess that many of you get discouraged or might be weighed down even this morning is because we forget what we actually have in Jesus Christ. We forget. A low spirit is often due to the failure to apply what we know is true to every situation that's new. We're like, oh, Jesus is amazing. And then a new situation comes in and it goes out the door and we're like, this is the worst. I have no hope. We fail to apply what is true to every situation that is new. We need to think again. We need to remember. If you're like me, you need constant reminding. It is an essential practice. Just ask my wife. She needs to remind me of everything. You will never outgrow your need to be reminded, friend. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says this, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. See, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he's like, you need to be reminded. It might even be tedious. I don't care. You need to be reminded. But reminded of what exactly? Well, we need to remember where our hope comes from and why we can celebrate. So this morning as we come to this final chapter, and as we wrap up the book of Esther and celebrate baptism, let's take our cues from the party we're about to read about in the book of Esther, because it foreshadows truths for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And the first is this, my exhortation to you, remember, you have been handed a victory. That's the first point. Remember, you have been handed a victory. The author here in Esther chapter 9 summarizes everything that happens or is about to happen in the chapter at the very beginning with this great little phrase, but the tables turned. Dun, dun, dun. I love it. I'm a little dramatic if you haven't noticed that yet. So whenever I read scripture, there's always a soundtrack. It's like, the tables have turned. And we read in verse one through four, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables have turned. Thank you, you you guys were with me, I set you up for it. (laughs) Woo! 
and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Friends, what I want you to notice is the outcome of the conflict had already been settled before the battle began. The tables had turned, and everyone knew it. They faced the confrontation with the confidence of victory. And we read about the details here. Now keep in mind, we are told that this was all in response to their oppressors, the one including Haman's own family who were more like the, the generals of, of the, the armies who wanted to carry out these evil acts towards the Jewish people to kill all of them. And several times to emphasize this, the author shows us that this was for protection, not for profit. Let's read verses 5 through 16. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And, what they, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, these are the sons of Haman, Barshandatha, Dalphon, Asphatha, Paratha, Adela, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisa, Eridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman of Hamaditha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's province? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request, the king said? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day the edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. And so the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and to get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. As we read this account where the Jews overpowered their enemies, the need for self-protection is obvious. And there are certainly some times in history and places in the world where we see the need for it. But for many today in our modern world, the opposition that we will face will be much more social and spiritual. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will face opposition. People will oppose your faith. They will oppose your practices. They will oppose your beliefs, your way of life. And the question is, do we need to fight these enemies in order to get relief? Well, the answer is no. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings us victory and a new way to relate to those who oppose us. 
See, here's what happens in the gospel. Here's what happens at the cross. Jesus neither sweeps evil under the rug as though it doesn't matter, nor does Jesus make us or even our enemies pay the cost. Instead, at the cross, Jesus takes our place. Jesus pays the price for our sin. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them to his enemies, for they know not what they do. This means, friends, that first and foremost, you and I can be forgiven of our sin. We can be forgiven of our opposition to God. Even though we were his enemies, the cross makes a way for us to be forgiven and accepted by God forever. We are to receive that and celebrate that news. But it also gives us a new way to relate to those who oppose us. See, the peace that came after the defeat of the enemies in Esther is a foreshadow of the peace that comes when our enemies, true enemies, sin, Satan, demons, and death will be driven out forever when Jesus Christ returns, and he will. But here's the thing. You can be assured even now, even though that day will come in the future, you can be confident of that victory even now. You can rest even now. You know why? Because the tables have turned. Because of the cross, 2,000 years ago, the tables have turned. And whatever opposition we face, we can face it knowing that we have been handed a victory. So, in the midst of the spiritual battle, in the midst of the opposition, lest we forget, when it comes to the battle that you and I face, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Because of the cross, Colossians chapter two describes what God has done for those who trust in Jesus. When Jesus died, here's what happens. Colossians chapter two. Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's powerful stuff. When Jesus died, Satan, our true enemy, was disarmed of his one ultimately destructive weapon. And you know what that was? Our guilt. That's Satan's ultimate weapon. Our guilt before God. Because it's the one thing that could keep us from God. He wants to keep us in our guilt. But when Jesus died, he took that away. And so everyone who trusts in Jesus will never perish eternally. And no enemy can ever separate you from the love of God. And that leads to a new way of seeing your neighbors. A new way of even seeing your enemies. Because they are ultimately captives of sin. And the way that we fight is by preaching truth and praying for them. The way we fight in our lives is with truth and with prayer. That's why Jesus said famously in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, he said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. The end of Esther is history, but it is also a signpost. We will one day get ultimate relief from the spiritual battle against us. And when we are feeling attacked, we must remember a victory has already been handed to us. So though you may face some tactical battles today, the war has already been won. That's good news. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been handed a victory. And because of that, there's a second thing you need to remember that we take our cue from this text. Secondly, remember Not only have you been handed a victory, but secondly, remember, you have a reason to celebrate. You have a reason to celebrate today. As we approach the end of this book, we're let in on a little secret as to why this book was written. It's not just a historic record of all of these events, which it is. But it is also an explanation for why the Jewish people created a holiday, the Feast of Purim. Why did they create it? It was for the benefit of future generations, reminding them that no matter what, they always had a reason to celebrate. So when the battle ends, a celebration begins. Look at verses 17 through 19. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, They rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to one another. And I want you to notice, friends, that this became a practice, it became a rhythm, it became a ritual, if you will. And actually, here's a fun Old Testament fact, it's the first new Jewish festival instituted since the time of Moses. And it was called Purim. Why? Because it was named after the very dice, the pur, that Haman cast against them. They named the festival after those dice. They said, this guy rolled the dice against us, but God fought for us instead. We're going to remember that. More celebration. They named it after him. Look at verses 20 to 26. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them, to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration that had begun, doing what Mordecai had written. For Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot or the dice, for their ruin and destruction. But when that plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen 
and what had happened to them. What a change of fortune. And they marked it by celebration. Why? Because they needed to remember. It was a time of renewal, a time of revival. For the Jews experienced corporately what Esther and Mordecai had experienced personally, an awakening. The inauguration of this celebration was a way of saying, never stop remembering. Never stop remembering. And when that feast would come around the next year, hey, never stop remembering. Remember the victory that is handed to you. You have a reason to celebrate. And I want you to notice as we read that passage, they were committed to celebration. I love that. Look at the conclusion of the chapter, verses 27 to 32. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province and every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And they made it official. Verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdoms, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times. As Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regards to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. I love this. There's this day of feasting, and then they say, hey, we need to make this a practice. And then in verse 29, the queen made it official. And in verse 30, it was sent out to everyone as a decree, and they added it to their list of feast days and celebrations, and all these practices were confirmed in verse 32. Why? They must not forget. They must never stop remembering what had happened personal question for you. What is it that you remember? And what is it that you celebrate regularly? Because you could tell a lot about a person by what they celebrate. If you're to celebrate, for example, your, your wedding anniversary in a big way, you're making a statement. On the other hand, as I'm sure some have made the mistake of doing, when it's your anniversary, you're like, hey, it's our anniversary. Totally forgot. Want to get breakfast or something? Let's go to Cafe Nouveau. It's nice. You know, it's nice out. You're like, oh, yeah, they, they're kind of down with their anniversary. But if you plan it out and you're like, we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a great meal. We're going to invite friends. Like, oh, wow, they really value that. Sorry, I'm not trying to place guilt <laughs> on you if you didn't celebrate your anniversary in a big way. But you can tell a lot about a person by what they celebrate. And today, friends, guess what we're celebrating? Salvation. 
We are celebrating the fact that there are men and women who were previously in darkness and doomed forever, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and as a result, they've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and they are our friends and family forever. That's what we're celebrating today. And in doing so, we are also celebrating our own salvation because we never get over it, right? It's not like, oh yeah, I used to be happy when I was a new Christian. That was the honeymoon phase. But now it's the jaded phase. It's the cynical phase. Friends, we need to be reminded. We need to celebrate our salvation. And while the New Testament does not command us to celebrate this feast of Purim, we are told to celebrate the victory of Jesus because salvation always leads to celebration. Amen? Our celebration is not just a one-time event, but like in Esther chapter 9, it is a lifestyle. And we have practices every Sunday when we gather together and we sing together and we hear God's word and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we pray and we, we lift our voices. It is a remembrance celebration. Or when we have baptisms like we do today, we are reminded of our own salvation as we celebrate the salvation of others. And I love that we're told here that Mordecai not only knew this news, but he actually recorded it. He wrote it down. How else would people remember? How else would others remember? It's like for those of you who, you know, you keep journals, journals of prayers that you've prayed, and then later on when, when God answers them, you can go back and you can celebrate because God answered your prayer. It was recorded Today, I'm charging you as I charge myself. Recall all the ways in which God has been faithful to you. Recall all of them to your mind and heart today, all the ways in which God has been faithful to you. How has he saved you? How has he provided for you? How has he guided you? How has he met you in your darkest moments? How has he continually been patient with you and those around you? How has he changed you and transformed you? Friend, remember today. Recall to mind, you have a reason to celebrate. And with this, how easy it is to forget the very reasons that we have hope. Notice, they didn't make that mistake. They're saying, hey, we're gonna make this official. We're gonna repeat this so that we don't forget. And the story is powerful because it's a link and a long chain that leads all the way to Jesus Christ. Because God's faithfulness to the Jews then led to God's faithfulness in Jesus to us today. And so when we gather, we confess our sin, but we also celebrate our Savior. So that means as a Christian, you have a reason to celebrate and throw a party at any time. So permission granted. <laughs> no matter how dark it is, you could celebrate. In fact, this is one of the like, key distinctions of the Christian community that no matter how dark things are in 2021, people should walk into a room and see Christians celebrating and people should be saying, what is wrong with these people? Why are they singing? Haven't they looked at the stock market? 
Haven't they been talking to me about politics right now? Like, why are they singing? And you could say, because of Jesus. Because yes, there's a lot of news out there, but I'm celebrating the good news of Jesus Christ that can never be changed. Because no matter how bad things are getting, the tomb is still empty. Are you with me, people? Sorry, I'm just fired up right now. This, this is a sign to the world. This is our reason to celebrate. We could throw a party at any time. We have permission to do that. It's why we sing at church. It's why we lift our hands. It's why we raise our voices and we don't look at our neighbor and say, wow, you're a little too enthusiastic this morning. <laughs> oh, clapping, are we? Yeah, I was dead and now I'm alive. Right, it's a reason to clap. <laughs> and it's why we're celebrating baptisms today. Because as we sing and as we celebrate, it helps us remember who God is and how he's worked in the past and in our lives today. And if you're like me, I don't care how I feel about it. My emotions are not always there. I'm gonna obey and my emotions will catch up as Dom always reminds me. <laughs> like I have a reason to celebrate so I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna allow my emotions to catch up later. We celebrate in the present as an act of faith but it's something that points towards the future. But you might say, well, what about right now? Well, that's why this third point is for us. Remember, you've been handed a victory, you have a reason to celebrate and thirdly, God is with you through it all. And if you just flip the page to Esther 10, do you notice Esther has 10 chapters, only three verses? Snuck up on you. What we have seen in Esther is not God's visible hand of miracles, but his invisible hand of providence. That's what we see in Esther. And friends, that means that even when our lives can be incredibly difficult, you might even hear me talking about celebration and you might say, yeah, 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 but don't they know what's going on in my life right now? Doesn't this guy like shouting at me know what's going on in my life right now? I may not know the details, but the Bible is no stranger to difficulty, trials, adversity, and suffering. But it does mean that in the midst of it, we can know that God is with us through it all. This means that even when things can be incredibly difficult and we do not always know or even see the ways in which God is working and maybe there's a temptation to be overwhelmed by the circumstances we're in, we can look back on God's past faithfulness and we can know that even though I don't see him as we often sing, I can know and I can trust and I can bank on the fact that he is active, he is present, and he is working. Even when the past seems overwhelming to me or the present seems overbearing to me, I can know that God is with me through it all. You can know that God is with you through it all. And we can look to the end of this story as a foreshadow of our own, remembering that God is sovereign over our lives, even as he was over the lives of of Esther and Mordecai. And notice how it ends for Mordecai, a man who at one point in the story is in danger of being killed by wicked Haman. And the tables didn't only turn for the Jewish people, but even for Mordecai. And it's a picture of the position that all of us have with Jesus Christ. Look at these final three verses in chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people 
and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I love this closing little epilogue in this book because it's helpful to remember that even though we do have a great future, we can also be honest about the fact that the present is not always as it should be. Did you notice that taxes went up? Some things don't change in the immediate. <laughs> you just pass by there and like, yeah, we're going to celebrate, by the way, taxes. Shoot. No problem. It's California. I'm used to it. Some things may not change in the immediate, but you can change. God changes you because he is with you. And through Jesus Christ, you are seated in the heavenlies with him. And notice the effect that that had on Mordecai. Unlike his evil predecessor, Haman, Mordecai used his position to serve others and not himself. Because that's what happens when you remember that God is with you. So we started out this series by asking the question, how can we live out our faith in a world of exile? A world that is difficult, a world that is disconnected from God. Well, Esther is our reminder. And if I had to summarize, I just want us to remember three things as we prepare to celebrate this morning. Three very important truths that we learn from this book and we need to take with us into our lives even today, even in this moment as we celebrate. First of all, Esther reminds us that the presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. The presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. Even when it seems that God is absent and we cannot imagine how he could possibly do what he promised to do, we can remember his past faithfulness to give us courage and expectancy in the present. We do not always know the significance of the events that take place in our lives or even the, the ordinary moments in our personal lives. But as we read a book of Esther, we know that no moment is wasted. Our history, even the, the dullest moments, are encompassed and included in God's plan. Don't forget, this whole story, the plot turned because the king couldn't go to sleep one night. The Jewish people were in danger what turned the tide? One night, the king just couldn't go to sleep and had one of his servants bring in the record of what happened. And that's when he was reminded about Mordecai and how Mordecai actually saved the king. And the king's like, oh, right, yeah, we should honor him. And it changed everything in the story. Why? Because he couldn't go to sleep and there was no Netflix. So he brought in his steward to tell him about the history of the kingdom. We look at that, we're like, God, you are amazing. You use even the most ordinary moments in ways that we never could have foreseen, and even in the present, we have no idea how he's doing it. The presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. Secondly, Esther reminds us that God's perfect work can be accomplished through imperfect people. We've seen in the story that Esther and Mordecai, they start out kind of in the shadows, but then they come out, have a reawakened faith, and they identify with the people of God. And we're reminded in that that both our best moments and our worst moments are not outside of God's sovereignty. That's an important lesson because religion, that is the effort based on man to find a way to God, religion 
says, God will only be with you on your good days. But the gospel of grace says, God will be with you even on your bad days. Because you are not accepted on the basis of what you have done or failed to do, you are accepted on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done and what he continues to do. God is able to do his perfect work through imperfect people. It is a reminder of God's grace. And lastly, Esther reminds us that for the believer, sorrow will ultimately give way to joy. If what we know about the cross of Jesus is true, if what we know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, and we believe it is, then we can even expect God in places of great difficulty. And though for a time there may be great mystery, we can be assured that it is being worked out for our joy. And we have reminders of that even in books like this, the book of Esther. And so Esther reminds us of this. But listen, Jesus assures us of this. Because Jesus is alive, because Jesus will come again, and because Jesus has done greater things than Mordecai and Esther could ever do, we can be confident today. We can celebrate today. And I even love seeing the parallel between Mordecai and Jesus, and it will strengthen your faith. Because Mordecai may have saved people from one nation, but Jesus saves people from every nation. Mordecai was able to serve one generation, but Jesus serves in every generation. Mordecai was able to send words of goodwill and assurance to one people, but Jesus sends words of assurance to every people and to every person. Mordecai was able to bring rest for his time, but Jesus brings rest for all time. Mordecai saved people from imminent death, but Jesus saves from eternal death. Mordecai served in a kingdom that came to an end, but Jesus reigns over a kingdom that will never end. Mordecai brought temporary peace with an earthly king, but Jesus brings eternal peace because he is the heavenly king. And so just, amen, we celebrate that today. Just as the Jewish people were never to stop remembering their deliverance, we must never stop remembering our deliverance. And so we're gonna do that today. We are gonna celebrate. We're gonna celebrate the lives of those men and women who have been changed, and we're gonna celebrate the way in which Jesus has changed our lives today. And so I say this first to those of you who are not yet Christians. Maybe you feel as if this morning you're on the fence. You're like, yes, I affirm this, I believe it's true, and like, that's good, but you know, I'm just kind of, on the fence, listen, tomorrow is not promised to you. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world for you. He died on a cross for you to pay for your sins. He rose again on the third day to give you new life. He rose again into heaven, and he will return again to make all things new and wipe away every tear from your eye. But today is the day you must trust him. So if you have not done so, what better opportunity do you have than this moment? When God is speaking to you, the invitation is made and you can get baptized. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ, accept him right now by simply praying, Jesus, save me. Save me, not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done. 
I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose again on the third day. I put my trust in you. Pray that from your heart today and know that you are forgiven. Know that you are accepted. And in a moment, I'm gonna invite you up to show that publicly, to show that personal decision publicly right now. If you're a, a Christian and you've not yet been, been baptized, maybe you've, you've put it off. Maybe it's something like, oh no, that's for more like extreme Christians. No, 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 this is for you. Again, it's not an option by Jesus, it's commanded by Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of the salvation that is brought to you. If you have not yet been baptized, today is your opportunity. And Christian, as we're celebrating the salvation of other people, you can celebrate your own salvation because you and I, we need to remember how God has brought about victory for us. Amen? Let's press into this moment now. Let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to move. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the victory that you have brought for us through Jesus Christ. The victory against the ultimate enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And I thank you that we can celebrate that here today. And I pray that even now for those who we're ready to get baptized, I pray that they would experience a radical move of your spirit in their heart as they come up and as they go down into the water and come out of the water. I pray that they would experience your spirit in a mighty way today as they make this public declaration. Father, for those who didn't plan on getting baptized but they have not yet done so, I pray that your spirit would compel them to do so even now. And Father, for us as a congregation, may we celebrate. May we celebrate all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do in this moment together as a church. So Spirit of God, move. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, people, it's time to party because we always have a reason to celebrate. If you are getting baptized, I'm gonna ask you to line up to my right, to your left. This time of response, this time of song, we've got plenty of time as we sing and rejoice. If you're getting baptized, I invite you right now to, to come line up along this, this ramp right here, my right, your left. Some of you, again, you planned on getting baptized, amazing. Come up, leave your keys, your phone on your, on your chair. There's t-shirts here ready for you. We've got towels on the other side. We've even got floor mats going all the way to the bathroom. Everything has been readied for you. Even if you didn't plan on getting baptized, now is your moment. Now is your moment. Again, it's all prepared for you. The t-shirts are there. The towels are there. We've removed all the barriers. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Come. You know, it may be that some of you have put it off for, for a very long time. Maybe you did give your life to Christ, but you've never been baptized. Or maybe you were like me. I got baptized when I was really young, but it meant nothing because I wasn't a believer. 
And then later, ironically, I get saved. I go to Bible college and I hadn't been baptized yet. And I was at a baptism that I did not plan on participating in. But as I was celebrating the baptism of others, the Holy Spirit's like, you haven't been baptized. And I was like, I'm not ready. Doesn't matter. Get in. And I was drenched and soaked and it was awesome. And I will never regret it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've left your first love. That might be a word for you and you've never expressed that in baptism. Today is your day. And if you've just given your life to Jesus Christ right now, respond, make it public by being baptized. Jesus was not ashamed to be publicly crucified for you. So may we not be ashamed to declare it from the rooftops that we put our faith in him. Amen? Again, line up to my right, to your left, along the railing here. And church, we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate. The video is going to be on the the screen. We are going to celebrate remembering what this is all about. Amen? Let's do that now. Let's celebrate the salvation and victory of God.